you know as well as I do that in order to feel like you're in a state of flow and kicking goals, you just got to get your stuff together. You need to have a handle on your own mental well-being and emotional resilience. And as an adult, I don't think many of us have nailed it. I know I definitely haven't. But what about our kids? In an age of increased anxiety and a heightened importance and awareness around mental health, how do we help the next generation with complex but critical things like mental resilience, emotional awareness, and social literacy skills? Well, my guest today has been in this space for a long time, and I'm talking with Dr. Louise Metcalf, the founder and CEO of George, a friendly robot app that empowers kids to improve their mental well-being. In this episode, we'll explore the increasing prevalence of anxiety in society, approaches to be more mindful of mental health and technology use, and how as a society we can help kids learn, improve their emotional intelligence, and feel better about themselves. Let's make it happen, Team Health Tech. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Dr. Louise Metcalf, a psychologist of almost 30 years. She's passionate about mental health and empowering people, especially kids, to improve their emotional resilience and mental well-being. Louise is the founder of George, a friendly robot that empowers children with emotional intelligence and mental well-being through check-ins and meditation exercises, making it fun for kids to learn the skills and knowledge that they need to understand their emotions and calm themselves when they're feeling stressed. Hey, Louise, how are you doing? Good, thanks, Pete. How are you? Really good. Thanks so much for joining. It's going to be good to explore your world of George and friendly robots and yeah, everything in between. So thank you so much for making the time. Oh, pleasure. Let's get to know you a little bit firstly. Tell us a bit about your background and your story. Well, as you said, I've been a psychologist for an incredible amount of time, really a very, very long time. Luckily, I really love it. So it's been really good fun. It's such a great job. If anybody ever asked me, should I become a psychologist? I'd say, oh, yes, definitely. (laughs) Because there's just so much you can do. People often think it's just the people sitting on your couch, but there is just so much you can do. And organizations more and more want psychologists to do more and more different things. It's such a great job. And I've done many different things in my career. But first of all, I didn't mean to become a psychologist, actually. I grew up in the middle of nowhere, had never even heard of psychology, didn't mean to get into university, totally fluked it, didn't even (laughs) study much. And then not many people were getting into university at the time. So don't think of that as a particularly good element of me being skilled or anything. It was just (laughs) luck, really. (laughs) And then when I actually got to university, I had no idea what I was going to study. I hadn't had a single discussion with a career advisor. So I just picked subjects at random. And one of them was psychology. And the first lecture I did in psychology, I knew I loved it. So from then on, it's been an adventure of exploring the human mind. and I've loved every minute. That's unreal. That's just fortuitous, right? That was your calling and all I needed was a roll of the dice and then away you go. Yeah, total luck. (laughs) That's so cool. So what are you doing now? Tell us about George. What's that? Who's it for? What problems it solve? George is 
the little robot who helps kids with anxiety and to build resilience. He's a virtual robot. He did actually exist in a real robot form. Uh, so I started building him as a real robot, but it was very hard to get any help to do that. So I, I pivoted pretty early on into just building his brain as an app. And that's been much, much more successful. I did have a comment at the beginning that no one's going to give us psychologists money to build a robot, but it <laughs> <laughs> turns out you just have to pivot a bit and then it's possible. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Fill the gap for me there. Going from being a psychologist to building a robot, that middle bit in between, why the robot and what's that whole kind of you know pathway? Yeah, I've done so much in my career. Right? I, when I left university, I explored. I did things like, it might be a little bit triggering, but I did things like rape counselling and counselling for people with PTSD. I did so many different things that you can do in psychology, just exploring what is possible in this in this universe. I also did things like consulting to organisations right around the world, helping them with mental health as well, and also helping people to be better leaders. I did that as well. So many things. And right throughout that journey, I've been counselling people the whole time as well. So counselling adults, counselling children. And of course, as when you counsel children, you also counsel families. So that was that was all good. I was enjoying that. I have to admit, I did notice a rise in childhood anxiety, but I've practiced in the city around a lot of very intense private schools. And I thought it was, I honestly just thought it was just them. And when I had my own kid, I obviously started taking him to daycare, as we all do, and preschool. And the, it was kind of shocking to me that the thing that everybody wanted to talk to me about, it was really persistent, was childhood anxiety. The first time this happened, I was like, that's odd. And then it just kept happening. I need to talk to you about childhood anxiety. I need to talk to you about this symptom. And it turns out to be childhood anxiety again and again and again. So at that point, I thought, okay, I don't think it's just where I'm practicing. I need to look at this. And when I did, I was really shocked at the rates. The rates are really, really high. And that was pre-pandemic. So that was, that was a good five years ago, and I was shocked at the rates then, and the rates now are incredibly bad. It's not good. Hence, George. <laughs> yeah, okay, excellent. And so set the scene for us, though, when we think about anxiety, even just anxiety generally, and uh, I think of other terms that people throw around sometimes interchangeably, like stress, anxiety, depression. Is there an easy way to think about the differences here for those not involved in the space? And is it important to make those delineations? Absolutely. Yeah. Like stress, anxiety, and depression are all not so good. There is a positive form of stress, but the stress that you're talking about here is the not so positive, the stuff that keeps you up at night. So stress is different to anxiety. It's different to depression but they do bounce off each other a bit. So stress is basically where, yeah, life is busy, lots of stuff is happening, maybe not so great stuff is happening, and it does feel very intense, and it does feel like you are a bit exhausted about it, but your thinking is still very you. Anxiety is where, basically I describe it like this, you're thinking about the future, but it's all negative and it really is a big part of your thinking. So you're spending a lot of time thinking about the future and it's all negative. And depression is thinking about the past, but it's all negative. So you can see how it's the change in your thoughts. Your thoughts aren't balanced. 
they're definitely much more in the negative zone. Like the chances of your future being entirely negative are almost zero and the chances of your past actually being entirely negative are almost zero. It's the way that you're focusing in on things. So that's the big difference between those three. Yeah, okay. And so it's interesting, isn't it? Like when I think of stress and anxiety and depression, if we took those three, and in society on a day-to-day as you're operating, whether it's within your professional lives or whatever, there's been some progress, at least I see from the outside, let's say, it's not okay to joke about depression, for example, but it's quite common for people to say, oh yeah, I'm super stressed right now, or even I'm super anxious about this thing. And you use it as a demonstration of how much you care about it or how good you are at something. So there's a stigma behind a lot of, well, no, sorry, it's not even, sometimes it's hard for people to kind of break through and realize that that's a proper thing and a symptom and an issue to address. Do you find that as well? Yeah, absolutely. People who present to do therapy tend to come in because they've experienced something big, but there is a whole bunch of stuff in the background when do you think this started? And they can go back even decades. So absolutely, it does sit in the background most of the time. And then when something big happens, or you just hit hit that straw that breaks the camel's back, which can be surprisingly small sometimes, but that event, and then you realise, oh my goodness, okay, this isn't right. Something is off. I really need to go and get help. And the other thing that can happen, of course, is that your friends or people around you say, oh, you know what, something is different here. You're very negative all the time or I just don't feel like I can stay friends with you because it's hard to be friends with you right now. And that's when people tend to come in and say, I need help, something is off. And that's when we start to investigate and start to find some of those negative thoughts. Interesting. And so I think about anxiety, it's increasingly more common and increasingly more of an issue in the modern day today. Is that right? Yeah, this is the thing that really shocked me about kids. When I first started studying, which was a long time ago, right? I've been practicing for 30 years, so you've got to add a few more years on there. And then you've got when I started studying. And the rates in the childhood anxiety back then were so low that I remember reading in my developmental textbook something about don't worry about it, you'll probably never see it. So that's how low those rates were back then. And obviously they've been on the increase and a lot of that time I haven't been noticing, which is terrible, but then noticing, really, really seeing it very clearly five years ago and that's when I really started to get very, very serious about how you tackle this issue and at scale because the rates are increasing so fast that we simply can't produce enough psychologists to meet that demand. That's why technology had to play a role. I love what psychologists do. I love therapy. I think we're amazing, of course, but they're just simply aren't enough of us and there never will be. There never will be. So the rates for childhood anxiety pre-pandemic were estimated to be one in five kids, which was way high enough for me and for anybody, I think. That was just shocking as it was. But post-pandemic, UNICEF has told us it's more likely to be one in two. So that is atrocious. And it affects your learning. It affects how you create relationships. You are 50% less likely to complete high school. You are 80% less likely to complete university. 
So the massive impacts and it's a terrible condition to have in childhood. You're much more likely to have serious mental health conditions in adulthood. It just has terrible impacts. So it's a problem. And pre-pandemic, we knew that two-thirds of those kids with diagnosable symptoms weren't being diagnosed and weren't being treated. So psychologists have been pretty busy for a while now and we weren't reaching two-thirds of those kids. Nowadays, we are super busy, super, super busy. You're looking at a waiting list now for, I think, every psychologist in the country. And you're probably looking at a higher number of kids that aren't being diagnosed and treated. So it's terrible, really terrible. You were talking about pre-pandemic and post-pandemic and it being such a sizable shift uh, on either side of the event. What is it about the pandemic? I can make my assumptions, but I'm interested in your perspective about what's driven such a drive to one in two kids with, with anxiety. It's been very interesting. There's lots of factors involved, but the big thing sitting in the background is that the world is very different today. When I was studying, those rates were really, really low. It's a very different childhood that was in my textbooks. Much less information, no social media, and a much more stable kind of world. I did know about climate change as a kid, that, you know, it was discussed way back then, but it's much more prominent now and it is a big deal. Kids are right to be thinking and trying to problem solve around climate change. And as we all know, the pandemic is a definite effect of the Anthropocene and climate change. So it's it's compounding together. It is a very, very different world. I often have parents ask me when the kids have anxieties, like, are we just crap parents? Like, <laughs> do we all just suddenly become crap parents to have rates of anxiety this yeah. high? And the answer is no, of course not. Parenting is basically a family systems thing. You parent pretty similarly to how your parents parented. And actually, we're probably better parents than our parents because we're a little bit more knowledgeable about the effects of parenting on children and we try a bit harder to get it right and rates of things like smacking are really low now. We're better but the world is very, very different and that is the big problem. I'm totally on the same page with you on that. Often though, especially with mental health too, for those that aren't totally across things, they're like, well, this always existed, now we're just calling it this or it used to be this 50 years ago, but now we call it anxiety or ADHD or other issues as well. How do you reconcile some of that? How do you speak to some of those kind of claims that people make? Yeah, it's a good question. And there's definitely part of that, right? Like I was a shy kid. These days, shyness is on the list for likely to be anxious. And I was an anxious kid. And that's something where you can see how we've grown in our knowledge of the brain and childhood particularly with the invention of the fMRI, the Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging Machine, is an amazing leap forward for psychology. And now we know a lot more and so we diagnose better. But even if you added that in, it's not going to accommodate for this exponential increase in rates because we already know we're missing out two-thirds of those kids. The numbers would not be sufficient to answer that question. And certainly that's where the researchers kind of go in this area. The numbers don't add up for that to be the case. So it definitely is a very different world and it's just not built for the human brain and certainly not for the developing human brain. 
You talked about one of the obvious shifts over the past 50 or whatever time frame in the modern day is technology and technology can be the cause for a lot of these issues as well. One of the main drivers, anxiety, like you say, socials and other bits and pieces as well. How do we make that shift towards tech being predominantly the solution to some of these issues rather than the cause? This is one of the missions of George. We really want technology to be healthy. It can be. So I think what we're seeing at the moment is technology that's been built very much around some of the things that are not so healthy about humans, like our Pavlovian response to notifications and beeps and little sounds and things alongside our tendency for addiction to stimuli, alongside many other things like our need to be liked. So technology is very built in a way at the moment, which panders to the stuff that actually isn't so healthy about humans. But it can be healthy. Absolutely, it can be healthy. And all it takes is a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of effort. And yes, some of the things that we do now might have to go, like the whole eyes on business model. That's a problem because human beings aren't meant to be stuck to a single screen for hours and hours on end. So there are definitely some challenges, but it is entirely possible. And we do need to start building this technology in a really healthy way. There's also great opportunities, right? Like also slightly triggering apologies to people is that suicide rates are on the rise. And any psychologist will tell you that 50% of suicides cannot be picked up by a human being. There simply aren't enough symptoms obvious enough for us to pick it up. But technology probably can. So some of the research in this area that's happening around the world is how do we do that? How do we use the inputs that our technology can pick up from people to stop them from doing something which, of course, they would not choose to do if they were well? So this is a very interesting area and definitely shows you the possibilities of using technology for very real good And so I think about these important concepts and issues in adults and in my own day to day, and I've felt the need. You know, what's really hard I find is during interviews, I still mentally, I'm like, oh, I better check my phone to see if I have any notifications. So when you're talking about that Pavlovian, like even, and I sometimes feel like my leg is vibrating, even though I don't have my phone in there. So yeah, we could talk for a while about that. That's totally separate. But this is in an adult situation where just going back to all of the issues that we talked before, anxiety and depression and mental health generally, as an adult, it's hard enough to deal with for kids. There's some pretty complex stuff going on there and you're tackling it kind of head on. What are some important concepts at play here when you're trying to support kids to make more positive mental health choices? Kids are great to build for, but they are incredibly tough. They've got no filter at all. So (laughs) they will tell you, (laughs) they will tell you if you've got it wrong. So we always build with kids and we quite often walk into a workshop with kids With a design, obviously, built from a psychological standpoint, we feel it's perfect. You know, we've really worked hard on this. This is an exercise designed to change your neurons around so that you have more positive thinking or you have balanced thinking. So we worked so hard. And we walk in with the kids and they're like, no, no, you've got this all wrong. Wow. (laughs) And they'll move things around or they'll say, you should do this or come on, this is much more exciting if you do this. And we're very careful because sometimes kids give us suggestions which are addictive. 
we were very careful to go, okay, well, how do we do that without it being addictive? <laughs> so, but it's so great to work with. And they have such great ideas. And we try very hard to build everything in that we can from their ideas because they're just marvellously creative, much more than we could ever be. And we just give them these concepts, give them these ideas, and they put pieces together. And that's amazing. We would not have thought of that. And it's better. How old are the kids that are using George? Seven to 12 years old at the moment because he requires some literacy. We keep things as symbol-like as possible, but he does require a little bit of ability to read and to write. But we are starting to work with the CSIRO to make that younger and older. So the problem with going older isn't so much about literacy. It's about a very natural, slightly annoying brain stage called sarcasm (laughs) that we have to deal with, (laughs) (laughs) which is quite a challenge for technology to deal with. But going younger, it is much more about using spoken voice alongside symbols. That gets tricky. We do need George to be fairly accurate, so that gets quite tricky. But it's definitely a challenge that we're up for. What does it look like on a day-to-day when people use it so people can get their head around, so people talk to George and it kind of responds and you engage with it? Yeah, he's very empathetic. He's designed to be empathetic. It is one of the things that kids said to us. They want George to say things like, oh, that sounds terrible or, oh, I can really feel what you're feeling. So he's very empathetic. And basically when kids start using George, they usually start using him for, for, for calming down from panic. Kids are a little bit like adults. They tend to let it get to that stage and then it's like, oh, help, help, help. And so he helps with that. He's like a first responder, really. He helps with that initial part of like, I'm helping you to calm down. Look at that. You're doing great. He's very, very positive, very cute and very encouraging. And then as part of that, you also do some exercises. And so what we've seen in our data is so encouraging. We've seen kids go from using that panic calm down function to just using the exercises within about 10 days. So we know that we're dramatically decreasing that very distressing part of anxiety and they're starting to actually process the thoughts and how to work better with their mind and the things that are coming up. So it's great to see that progress. Yeah, nice one. Hey, to shift gears a little bit and think more about the creation side and running the business and everything and that journey for you, you've been successful with a few accelerators and grants in the early days for George, and that's helped things along. Tell us a little bit about that journey about getting the business up. It's been great. It's been a real challenge. More than five years ago when I first started trying to build George, like I said, he was an actual physical robot. And yeah, that was impossible. There was just nobody, nobody coming forward to say, I will help you with that. Actually, I did have a time period there where I kind of gave up. I was like, oh, this is never going to happen. And then this thing popped up on my Facebook feed after a really long day of counselling. And it was like, do you have a crazy idea that would change the world? Well, actually, I do. (laughs) (laughs) So I was literally exhausted, but I was typing into this long form. I wasn't quite sure who these people were or what they were really after, but I thought, damn it, I do have a crazy idea that would change the world. 
So to admit, and it's that and Facebook Facebook targeting for the win. That's spot on, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's a whole separate episode. But anyway, yeah, keep going. <laughs> so the application turned out to be for one of the blue chili programs called She Starts, and yeah, and I look, I was very chuffed to get to every single stage. I was like, they were interviewing me, like, awesome! I got to the interview stage. I'm never going to get any further, <laughs> but this is great. <laughs> but it turns out they liked me, and I actually got in. And then after that, there was another program called Future Minds, which was also part of Blue Chili, but very different, very focused on how mental health can really affect education. So that was terrific. And then we started to go international with Expara, which is a Singaporean accelerator. And then there was Springboard Life Sciences, which is US. So we kind of had to go Singapore and the US because that's where George is growing to. So it was these were very important spaces to get to know people in, particularly 2020 pandemic. So we could not travel. We had to find other ways to talk to these people and that's why getting into these accelerators was so important for us. And so your user base, it sounds like it's quite global. It is, yeah. We didn't mean it to be. (laughs) (laughs) We only opened George up to Australia and New Zealand, but we completely didn't think about the Australians that were still all around the world in the middle of a pandemic, often with children and struggling to deal with the anxiety that was coming up. So as soon as we opened him up, which was only September in 2020, so not very long ago, he was being downloaded in places like Pakistan and Myanmar and Thailand and the UK and the US and, yeah, all around the world. And we've just had such positive feedback about how George is helping kids in those places in in very difficult times. And a lot of them are still stuck there, actually. Yeah, that's tough. Well, that's great that your technology can be used in those settings. And thinking then about the future for the space, thinking around technology and mental health generally, the impact of COVID has heightened that. And we've talked a lot on the podcast before about the long tail effect of mental health and the implications that has and how technology can play a part. Have you got some thinking around that particular topic? Yeah, this is just the beginning, right? I'd love to be able to say, guys, it's okay. There's not going to be another pandemic I'd love to be able to say, guys, it's okay, there's not going to be any more bushfires, it's not going to be any more floods, right? But totally would be proven wrong about that, 100%. The, our environment is becoming very unstable. So the prediction actually is for another pandemic in five years' time. It's horrible to think about that, but that's how much in the Anthropocene that human beings have actually affected our environment. So The world is becoming more chaotic. We're not tackling climate change issues. We're also not tackling the technology issues that are affecting mental health. So the idea that it's going to go away or it's going to get less is genuinely meant for a comedy sketch. Sadly, it's just getting worse and worse. I actually looked up the spending around healthcare because I think everybody in the tech space follows the big tech leaders like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, et cetera. And I've been watching how Jeff Bezos has been buying up more and more digital health tech. I've looked into that. and There's a very good reason for it. The spend for digital health, for healthcare, sorry, globally, is at $10 trillion. So not surprising that 
someone like him would be totally on top of that, but that's incredible. But the spend for mental health is $23 trillion. So <laughs> that's right around the world. So people often think, and I was one of these people, they thought, oh, it's mainly Western culture, right, because that's where all the psychs are. And that's true. It's where most of the psychs are. But it's not actually. Mental health care and interest in mental health care is in developing countries as well. I got my comeuppance in some of the international accelerators. People said, no way, you've got that really, really wrong. And so right they are. It is right around the world and very much in developing countries and they have almost no access to services, almost none. There is such a need and a very, very big demand. Back to the accelerators for a moment before we start to close out. And I'm thinking around some of the conversations I've had in the Talking Health Tech community forum and some of some of our members who are at that early stage who are in a similar situation to yourself, clinical, and then looking at building their own solution and contemplating that journey, all of them at different stages. And those accelerators and programs and different support networks are all pretty critical, but it can be a hard one to navigate or plan yourself for. Is there any advice or reflection? that you can provide that can give help for some of those people? Yeah, I think it's the network, right? Like network, network, network. That was why we had to choose these international accelerators is to get the network. Without travel, we just didn't have a choice. But I think there is also a bit of a caveat. If you are female, you have to be prepared to really be careful about your network because some of that network isn't going to be all that great for you. And that's a very sad thing that I've discovered in my journey. I really only started in this journey in 2019, the She Starts, right? So it's a very short period of time, but I have found quite a big difference. There are people out there who totally understand the barriers that women face and are helpful. There are people out there who maybe they don't understand the barriers, but at least they aren't particularly biased. But there are also people out there who are very biased and I have experienced quite bad gaslighting. So you just want to be careful about that. My advice, particularly to women founders, is before you talk to people as much as you can, do your research, know who they are, know what they've done, and that way you can see it. You can see the gaslighting when it happens. It's important because you can actually make some very big mistakes. And just remember that some of these people, they don't realise that they're gaslighting. They think they really are giving you good advice you will not know if it is actually good advice if you don't know who they are first. So women have to be that little bit more careful. They can't just talk to somebody who may be so experienced and brilliant, but do not know how they actually work in relation to women. So women actually have to be that little bit more careful in this space. Sad, but true. Just remember, there are some amazing people too. So there's three bunch of people, not just the one. But that one, yeah, you do have to be very careful about those people. It is good there's a heightened awareness and some specific programs helping women founders and everything, and that's good. But there's still so much work to do institutionally. We've still got a long way. So it's great for others to be able to hear experiences and hopefully make some wise choices or at least share experiences along the way and together we can navigate through. Just thinking then to rounding it out and thinking about George specifically and the business and you and everything, what's on the horizon? What can we look forward to seeing in the next 12, 24 months? 
so much. George is running really hot at the moment. We are building with the CSIRO some amazing artificial intelligence to advance what he can do in terms of picking up symptoms and helping people to access the help that they need. And we're also really working hard to get George into schools just to start that conversation with kids about how they can support each other and what this kind of stuff looks like and how common it is. And there is someone out there that can help you, which is, of course, is George and all the little characters that he's got. We're also hooking up George to treaters very closely now so that it's very easy for adults using George to go, oh, I think I need some more help here. I'm going to reach out to a psychologist. And of course, then if they choose, they can share the data that George has collected. So it's faster to diagnose and the diagnosis is more accurate. So we're doing all of that. We're also obviously expanding our work internationally. We have to And that includes starting to talk to schools, particularly in the US, because they have similar issues, obviously, and in in real need of how to manage those issues, not just on the school ground, but also at home. So it's quite a bit going on at the moment, which is terrific. Amazing. I, I like the connection through to the clinical and the broader health ecosystem. I think that's that's an important aspect. And the international expansion side sounds super exciting and, and critical as well. And just lastly, then for any parents and anyone wanting to check out George and download, I assume it's a, an app store visit and away you go. Absolutely. Yeah. So he's spelled a bit differently. He's an acronym. So the acronym is Gentle to Humans, Emotion and Thought Organization and Resilience Guide. I couldn't fit the T in. So it's G-H-E-O-R-G, George. Yeah, you see, Gatorg, it wouldn't have, no, that's no good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nice branding. We'll put the link to access it directly off the show notes of this episode so people can click through to that and check it out on their phones if they're listening there. But also on the website, we'll have a link through on the directory listing for George on the Talking Health Tech website. There'll be some information for people to check out. So check out the show notes for more information. But Louise, look, thank you so much for making the time to have a chat and explore so many different topics and concepts. It's been a great one. I really wish you all the best for everything in the future. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen. Go make it happen.